What kind of change, if you can pinpoint a couple that stand out most to you in therapy, are people trying to seek therapy and change that they feel they can't change? What are the most common ones they're trying to change? They think they can't change, but is totally changeable. Well, really how they feel. I mean, people come in and they're dealing with oftentimes anxiety or depression or even trauma. A lot of times it's relational challenges. If I have this family member or coworker or, you know, some person with whom I routinely have to interface and I got to figure out a way to navigate our exchanges differently because it it hurts literally. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. How often in therapy do you think you're... Helping people change something they think they can't change. That's like a very... Daily? <laughs> yeah, I, I hesitated for a second, but... <laughs> I'll answer for you. <laughs> it's pretty routine. And yet I would say the irony is that people come to me because they want to change, right? Mm-hmm. They're finally at this place. They're saying enough is enough. I want to feel differently than what I do. I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I can't recall it, but I'll Google it and get a perfect version of it. But it's like the pain to change has increased more than the pain to stay the same. Mm -hmm. So that's what perpetuates this need, this yearn for change. Mm -hmm. And then you seek the necessary help. Yeah, I think it is that the pain to stay the same is worse, right? Like if I I don't move, like this is going to be far worse. Yeah, I'm glad you correct me on that because, yes, if the pain to stay the same is more uh, than it would be to just bite the bullet and change. Right. Yeah. You know, change is hard. I always say, you know, people fight change, but we have to fight to change. Well, what's even more ironic is that we're always changing. Yep. Yep. You know, it, whether we are actively participating in that change or not, change is occurring. Every new lived experience changes you. Every new cultural shift Mm -hmm. has its impact. Yeah, we are so fluid as humans in that, you know, we're always taking in new information and, you know, incorporating it or rejecting it or like it's this constant fluctuation. What kind of change If you can pinpoint a couple that stand out most to you in therapy, are people trying to seek therapy and change that they feel they can't change? What are the most common ones they're trying to change? They think they can't change, but is totally changeable. Well, 
really how they feel. I mean, people come in and they're dealing with oftentimes anxiety or depression or even trauma. A lot of times it's relational challenges. If I have this family member or coworker or, you know, some person with whom I routinely have to interface and I got to figure out a way to navigate our exchanges differently because it it hurts literally. So what role does does our genes play into these things? Like uh, this idea, we'll talk about epigenetics, even neuroplasticity. What role do these kinds of like overarching sciencey things play into like everyday life for people? Well, genes are really what we're born with. And so this is an area that I often have to do a lot of educating patients around in terms of we are not solely our genes. Like just because this is what I was born with doesn't mean here's your future. It's predetermined. Sorry. Deal with it. <laughs> mm. How does genes relate to DNA? Like people, I'm thinking like these terms people hear in their lives, like they don't study this stuff. They're not in books like you or I might be. Genes are like, okay, that's my building blocks. And I think there's something called DNA and I've got my blood type and I've got like, you know, these things that my personality, like break those down. Genes, DNA, things like that. Well, the DNA is what makes up who we are. So it is our genes. So I don't want to do too much of a deep dive into that. But, you know, genes are sort of like this building block for who we are. So when things go awry, it's sort of like you've heard of certain abnormalities like trisomy 21. The 21st chromosome has this third aspect to it, which looks like what we reference as Down syndrome. And so or there are these genetic abnormalities, which they're fixed, like that you're not going to undo, okay? But we also aren't just subjected to what we're born with because we know this in terms of, for example, alcoholism. People who have, we know that there's a genetic facet or component to alcoholism. But just because you have it in your family line, i.e. the family building blocks, it doesn't mean that then you will be an alcoholic, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way with mental health, we can say, hey, this is in my family lineage. There's people in my life who have this, but it is not then mean that you will in fact have that same issue. Does that make sense? Yeah. In particular to alcoholism and let's just say an overarching theme, addiction. For me in particular, I can see how I have some alcoholic people in my family, right? I think almost everybody does, you know? And so that's sort of like a normal thing to some degree. But I can look at certain things. I have an addictive mindset, so I can say I'm susceptible to it, but I've somehow, you know, dodged that bullet, so to say, even, you know, like I've definitely drank in my life. I've definitely drank in my life in times when I've drank too much. And I have an addictive mind or a mindset or I'm. it seems like I can get addicted to something easier than say other people might in my perspective. And maybe that's playing out this whole genes role in my life and my lineage. Sure. So maybe it just doesn't look like alcohol, but maybe, you know. Anything fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But 
and that's just it. It's not all bad, right? But if you're aware of, I like to think of genes like propensities. Like I'm more prone. I'm more likely. Right. If I'm faced with a fork in the road, my my brain goes, go this way. (laughs) This is the way. More often than not. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we're talking about then relative to change or epigenetics is that intersection of our environment and our genes. So, for example, maybe, God forbid, something really tragic in your life occurs that if you had, you know, been drinking more often that that's something you use for coping, it wouldn't be so far-fetched to imagine that that would sort of tip the scales for you towards alcoholism. Yeah, totally. I'm not correlating and say this is or causing you, but given you have this foundation and given this environmental exposure, I just tilted the scale in a way. Right. And you can't fight gravity. If we're doing a gravitational metaphor, like it's going to be harder for you to climb that hill back up to the other side to tip the scale the other way. Yes, exactly. And so that first thing is is recognizing or having the awareness around yourself and your genes. Now, that being said, there are some things where genes play a more relevant role. For example, in the lane of mental health, There are certain disorders like schizophrenia or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, bipolar disorder. These are more neurobiological disorders, which means they start in your brain and they have a stronger sort of genetic component than some other disorders, you know, Mm. than say like depression or even just anxiety. That's interesting. You know, regarding this addictive mindset I've mentioned and our discussion around it, I can see how I've also leveraged it, right? I would change the word from addictive to obsessive. And maybe that's even got some, sure, you know, borderline. So I think just reframing this whole name entertainment idea, the, even the awareness around it. So I think awareness is super key mm-hmm. for someone like me or anyone, you know, dealing with or having a similar scenario in their life mm-hmm. because I've been able to say, okay, it's not addictive it's obsessive and I've, I've allowed myself or kind of brought into awareness like what I allow myself to obsess over. So I obsess over work to some degree. Like I, I'm passionate about what we do, but I'm not compulsive to the point where I do work all the time. I set boundaries in my life. That's also a learned behavior too. I didn't always do good at that. This is not like I haven't been great at this in particular for a very long time. It's been for maybe a good marathon, not the full life of Adam so, so far. You know what I mean? Like but the point is, is like to say, if I fixate or obsess over, let's say, solving a problem, I'll probably figure out the necessary research to understand it better to eventually solve it. So I've taken this sort of mindset and I've shifted it to a positive perspective rather than this negative perspective of like, I'm not addictive, it's obsessive. And I use it to as a superpower to get over the hurdles in my life. Sure. And so that's just it. Like you've practiced a skill. And as we've talked about with building habits, you've sort of honed or sort of restructured yourself relative to the habits that you engage in routinely. So it makes a difference, right? And this is why sort of if you can imagine whatever we practice doing over and over again is going to have an effect. Right. 
Yeah. It's like if I practice the skill or like, you know, I mean, I practice even what I choose to to eat on a daily basis, right? That's right. going to take me down a road. And so this is where the hope is of recognizing the way in which my choices actually influence my overall brain and my health and how I feel. Yeah. Because guess what? If I realize I don't like the way that I'm going, for example, even naming it differently for you and saying this is somewhat obsessive, you can go like, is this sort of disproportionate? Like, am I spending too much time in this one area of my life? Say, for example, mountain biking, right? You're like, well, it started out just fine and this is a great healthy habit for me to engage in. But now it's like, I can do that work later. Oh, I'm sorry, family. I got to go bike. Sorry, friends. I'm hitting the bike. Yeah. Right? Well, that has crossed my mind a couple of times. <laughs> and it's true because, you know, I think anything anybody likes, me in particular, I can speak from my experience. If I like something, I'm more prone to dive in deeper. And sometimes it's a rabbit hole. Sometimes it's a layered onion. And it take you know, it's got multiple facets. Like if you ask me about something very geeky, I love bike tech. So I'm a technologist generally. Sure. But I love bike tech. Yeah. Geometry, things like this. Like anybody who rides a bike doesn't even understand the fact that geometry plays a key role in how that bike performs and is fun or, or not fun to ride or what kind of trails it's designed for. Sure. I do because I'm that weird. <laughs> I go that deep into things because that's what makes me enjoy them. That's what helps me to really appreciate all the art Right. Involved and the science involved in bike technology. It's crazy how much is involved. It really is. So let me ask you, have you always been that sort of geeky? Yes. <laughs> I didn't have to listen. To, yes. I didn't mean to cut you off, but yes. <laughs> My mom recognized it when I was young. Huh. My wife recognizes it. Everyone that's ever been close to me recognizes how deep I like to go. Kay. My mom would say, like, I loved baseball cars. I still have those baseball cards. I loved comic books. I still have those comic books. That's how deeply I grow a passion for and obsess over. Right. I would become a super fan of all the greats in comics, all the greats in baseball, all the greats in a given sport, all the greats in a given field. When I got in the military and I was given some opportunity, I began to love it and go deeper into it. Eventually, I served my time, and, and that time of my life is over. I found a new love that I found about business when I went to work for Muzak, mm -hmm. and I grew in love with, with business, and I've never stopped that particular obsession, and it's only got more multifaceted. So it's interesting how these obsessions in my life have shaped me in many ways. Okay, so if you can imagine as a sort of metaphor analogy that like our genes are like the foundation for our house, for ourself, and going, what if you got curious or were exposed to other things earlier on in your life that maybe weren't so functional? Like, because all of what you're saying are not negatives, right? Or not. Well, and I have been. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's. Without making this show completely about all my flaws, there's definitely been things that I've done that I haven't outlined that I've obsessed over that was not, you know, in your words, that was maladaptive, mm -hmm. you know, wasn't good for my life, wasn't good for my trajectory of career or who I was as a human, mm -hmm. you know, like the person I was definitely many things. Right. Yeah. Well, so I could even sort of out myself here a little bit of like, you know. Even given, right, we all manage stress differently and 
graduate school can be a stressful time in one's life. I remember this time where in, so it was when Krispy Kreme, if you don't know Krispy Kreme, it's a donut place that oh, yes. like <laughs> electrify the sign, right? They, they sort of highlight it that says, hey, hot donuts now, right? And they happen right. to install one on my way between my house and my school. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right? But yes. Right. Because <laughs> they're that good. <laughs> they were that good. And so I would love my Krispy Kreme sort of indulgence. But it took time to be like, you know what? I, I called it the 10-minute phenomenon of like, it was so good and so yummy going down. And then 10 minutes later, I was going like, why? Why did you do that, mm. Marielle? Like these conversations with myself. And so I had to actually use restraint to not continue. And it was so easy, right? Because you just pull right in. It's on the way, on the way to and on the way from <laughs> every yeah. day. That drive through is there. It's accessible. It takes just a minute. I mean, I can afford this. I've, I've budgeted for this donut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, going, this is my environment and maybe I probably have some predisposition in my genes relative to weight and obesity that I go, you know what, like if I'm to keep doing this, this is the sort of fork in the road that's going to take me a direction that I don't think I really want to go. But unless hmm. or until I was aware of like literally, right, that pain of like, Marielle, you feel horrible <laughs> after you eat these. Stop doing this. Stop doing yeah. this to yourself. <laughs> totally. You said, though, maybe I'm predispositioned in my genes. Mm -hmm. So that leaves the question of how the heck do we know what's in our genes? Because if I knew, if I had some wisdom, let's say I'm a listener of this show. And I'm 15, 18, 20, somewhere before my age currently, 41, mm -hmm. you know, some, somewhere where I could have influenced change earlier in my life. Totally can change now, you know, if I'm a 41-year-old listening to this show. But if I'm younger, how do I identify these things I'm predispositioned to to say, okay, these are my potential mile markers unless I deviate, as you said before, the fork in the road? Sure. Well, to some degree, I mean, you can go real science-y. There's test kits out there to actually look at and know your genes. They call them markers, right? Like yeah. you got markers for this, this, or this. Right. And I don't know that that's necessarily helpful for everyone because it can also then make you aware of things you didn't know that you could then obsess over. Uh, you think bliss is better. <laughs> no, but, you know, for some people, again, if you already are more anxious prone is that necessarily helpful for you to know all of the idiosyncratic things relative to your genes? Because now, again, you have this awareness. And so what are you going to, to do with that? I mean, I say obesity just because I ironically never necessarily reflected on that. I just know, like looking back through, I mean, certain maternal, paternal sides, like looking back through who has struggled with obesity, like, wow, there's more than I had really thought about before. Mm -hmm. And that combined with even my environment, right? I've talked about having been a gymnast starting from a very young age and I danced, which has a very narrow margin for weight. Like if you're going to be successful, you can't have a lot of excess, right? Right. 
those things coming together, that intersection looks like I've been very deliberate around health habits. Because of those reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not surprising even that I took the trajectory to go into the field of psychology, recognizing the overlap of how my mind and how my feelings impact my decisions and henceforth my performance, both in the gym and in life as a whole. You said, though, you're not sure you could recommend knowing this because of awareness. We preach awareness quite a bit. And so I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a second and say the classic answer there might be it depends. There you go. Because there's some people that would love to have that information and could make, yeah, I don't want to say good decisions, but use that in a manner that helps their life be aware of those opportunities or there's those predispositions and actually do change. There's some that will just take that as like a, a sentence of some sort, like this is where you're going. Sure. And there, there is no stopping. The train is heading to this station. Good luck. Yeah. You know? well, so maybe there's some that's like that. But I would say that for the people who can, who are motivated to understand, be aware, and change. I would think like if it were me, I wish I could have learned about my genes earlier in life. Sure. So that I knew. Well, because that would have changed. Yes. Okay. But so I guess that is highlighting there is not a one size fits all approach. And that the whole purpose of these conversations is I want you to think. Right. I want you to think about yourself and like, I mean, they're not free. So you have to spend money on the kits in order to get them back. And what kind of validity do they have? I you know, come from the place of I'm not going to recommend it if I haven't investigated it or vetted it myself. So okay. I, I like that. Idea. I haven't done that. So I'm not going to okay. say, yeah, go do that because I don't know what you're going to get. So here's some homework if you're listening, then if you know about genetic testing and there's some information you've read or a book you've read or something that seemed credible to you, share it with us. There's comments you can go to. I'm not sure the episode number this will be, but you can go to changelaw.com and find the show and comment on the show or just tweet at us. That works too. But let us know. I mean, we want to hear these things. This is a feedback loop. You know, while we may not be experts in everything, you may be more so, Marielle, but definitely not me. I don't know about genetic testing. I don't know how valid it is, but I got to imagine there's some validity in it. Like if we're talking about it, they, they exist and there's testing. Who knows? Sure. All it is is more data though, right? Right. You've said this before. All it is is more data. Gives yourself an opportunity to be a scientist to discover, to get curious. And I think that's what that is. Yes. But it's the same thing relative to like psychological testing. So like one of the things is in um, psych and neuropsych testing is that people could have access to these tests, but they don't know how to interpret it. So it's like, mm. do you know what a baseline is? Do you know how to make sense of that information? So just going, these are your genes. Who's going to be the translator for you to understand it? Hopefully, and this is the skeptic of me out there too, is like, I don't want to give my blood to people I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's why I can't do the whole, what's it, three in me or something like that? What is mm -hmm. it? Uh, yeah. Maybe I'm advocating for something I can't even get on board with. I don't even know. I'm not trying to advocate for it. I'm just saying be curious. So right. if, if you're cool with that, do it. But I mean, I, I have a hard time giving my blood to people I just don't know. Because like your blood is a representation of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were into cloning, you could rebuild an atom probably from, from from my blood. I don't know. But that's the weirdo in me that thinks about that. But okay, so maybe investigate very deeply and then not just the testing 
and the report that comes back, but the interpretation of those markers. There you go. Let's end that part. I, I, won't <laughs> I was going to say, we're going to turn. We're going to go. Unless we don't know. <laughs> Let's turn. <laughs> so what we're talking about, though, is conceptually neuroplasticity. And if you haven't heard about this, what it is is literally the brain's ability to reorganize itself by forming new neural connections throughout your life. So neuroplasticity allows neurons, which are nerve cells in the brain, to compensate for injury and diseases and adjust their activities in response to new situations or changes. One way in which I could say that it'd be helpful to sort of know your genes is relative to like autoimmune issues. Yeah. Because we've talked about stress as it relates to our immune system and going, hey, if I know that I've got a long line or even multiple people in my family who've had autoimmune things, I want to be very considerate around how I manage my stress, right? Because diseases, generally speaking, don't just sort of pop up unexpectedly in that there's been a sort of repetition of exposure and navigating things in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, that's definitely true. What's also really interesting, autoimmune is such a common thing. Mm -hmm. Disorders out there is such a common thing uh, relating to your immune system, your autoimmune disorders and stuff like that. And they play such a gigantic role. Yeah. Gigantic role in everyday life from thyroid to, you know, stress hormones, all these different things. Like they just play such a role. And I'm glad you said it doesn't just pop up. And that's why we're talking about this because part of fighting this or this awareness to fight this understanding of genes and, you know, predispositions and neuroplasticity, all these things is like, you know, what can I do? I'm not a scientist. I want to know some basic information to sort of like change my life. The basic prescription generally is eat a healthy diet, be active and avoid, you know, toxic chemicals. And be in relationship right? with people. Of course. Yes, <laughs> of course. But <laughs> yes, a healthy mind requ requires other people. So that's that's sort of the baseline there. But to avoid those things is sort of like giving yourself that. And that's autoimmune. Yeah. Uh, autoimmune is generally impacted by those things too. So this healthy diet or healthy eating or, or conscious eating mm -hmm. and how you're active in your life throughout your whole life and then toxic things like chemicals that are you know definitely toxic, Yep. avoid them. Right. Well, and that's just why going, it, it's sort of like overloading a system, right? And that maybe, you know, 5%, not so bad, 10%, or I do this one time, two times, three times, but like 25,000 or million times of repetition, that's where I get into trouble, right? And so right. recognizing that there are certain habits we engage in, responses we do, which can help us or hinder us relative to where we want to go. So mm -hmm. I appreciate it. It was um, Dr. Alvaro Pascual Leon out of Harvard's medical school who stated, who described neuroplasticity as this intrinsic, so internal property of the human brain that represents evolution's invention to enable our an, the nervous system to escape the restrictions of its own genome, i.e. genes, and thus adapt to environmental pressures, physiological changes, and experiences. That's deep. I know. So this is our hope. This is where it's like, I want to camp out. And really, epigenetics is this study of 
the way in which our genes and our environment intersect. So research are going, how do these show up? What do we do? How can people change their genes, so to speak? And it really isn't genes, it, but it does. It changes the trajectory. So it doesn't necessarily change the gene itself, but it changes the direction of things for the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting how the brain plays such a role in these things. I wouldn't imagine that neuroplasticity would allow me to override my genome. Yeah. To be able to adapt. Like the brain has that much ability. Like once, once we understand its capabilities and how we can play a role in these subconscious things that like seem to happen, like, you know, I'm not taking an hour a day for my neuroplasticity class. And I'm like rejiggering my mind. Maybe I am through, you know, mindfulness or certain, you know, thinking over things or whatever, but maybe that's the way you do it. But, you know, I'm not sitting there like literally mentally changing my brain. Like it's just wild how I can do that, but then it has that power. Right. So if we're using this sort of metaphor relative to a house, right, and our genes are the foundation. So I might have, like in the case of schizophrenia, okay, there is a genetic component to that disorder. So there's a crack in my foundation already. Well, then over time in my, I I never developed skills or strategies to manage anxiety or stress. And now I'm all by myself in a really stressful situation, right? I've got the family history. So the gene is there. Now I get whacked right on that crack and then I have the expression that looks like schizophrenia. Does that make sense? Kind of. So if I would have been doing other things earlier on, and again, it's not like a guarantee. I can't say, well, if you do all these things, then you're safe and you're fine and you don't need to worry about it. But if someone was using meditation, managing stress, anxiety, had social support, had other things, and they get hit on that spot on the foundation where the crack is, maybe they don't have a psychotic break. It doesn't Mm. mean that maybe they don't get stuck and really struggle more. But it's not like causal break. Right. Is that because they've been working on things like emotional intelligence? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we're going to talk about that at some point more deeply, but is that underlying what that is? Like once you learn coping skills and – have awareness and you have a a real clear picture of what you're actually thinking and why you're thinking it and all these things. Is that emotional intelligence to some degree? Is that what that is? Like building up that, not an IQ. EQ. Yeah, I suppose. Right. Like an EQ. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is because you have an awareness of going, this is where I get stuck or struggle. So instead of playing right next to the edge of the cliff, I'm going to play way back here. So that maybe I make choices in my life where I I manage my stress differently, right, which is an emotional intelligence. I have an awareness of who I am and the things that I can handle. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't converge, you know, starting a, a new job that's really intense alongside buying a house, moving to a new area and having a baby. Pick your timing better <laughs> if you can. <laughs> Yeah. But if you couldn't pick that timing, realize that you're going to struggle. And mm-hmm. that's part of the awareness is like, right. okay, this is a perfect storm of struggle coming right. up. What am I going to do about it? Well, yeah. now I have to leave buffer in there. 
Mm-hmm. I have to say no to things I would normally say yes to. I have to leave margin in my life, time margin, mm-hmm. mental space margin, you know, prioritize self-care, whatever that is for that person, right? Mm-hmm. It's a reframing of, okay, the next year's going to be tough. Right. It's going to suck sometimes. I might not fail, but here's how I can set myself up for success mm-hmm. given the scenario I'm in. Yeah, so if I can geek out again for just a a little bit, I want to talk about this one specific protein or gene that's called BDNF. It's brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Can you say that five times fast? Right. I can't say it once. (laughs) So BDNF is a gene that provides instructions for making a protein that's found in the brain and spinal cord. Okay, And what this does is promotes the survival of nerve cells by playing a role in the growth, what we call as maturation or like differentiation of neurons and the maintenance of these cells. So this protein is active at the connection between our synapses where the cell-to-cell communication occurs. So these can change and adapt over time in response to an experience which is what we're talking about relative to neuroplasticity. Is it like the soil, the nerve cells are planted in kind of thing? Like you're, you're sort of like taking care of the ground for which your neurons are planted in? Well, sort of where they collide, where they meet. Right. Yeah. Sure. Where they meet. It's like a happy environment for them to live, essentially. <laughs> the connections are positive and mm-hmm. positive influence is not negative and negative influences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the precise biochemical changes that take place when neurons connect to form these networks can be complex. Researchers generally agree that this is sort of the fertile ground, like helping transform two neurons into a dance. Like, hey, let's be friends. You hang out. I hang out. Like, we're good. And so this BDNF, I want to talk about it because it's so important in neuroplasticity. And so there's Certain behaviors, right, not things in our brain that we do, but certain choices we make that can, what we say, upregulate, maximize this BDNF transcription, and those include exercise. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Omega-3 fatty acid, DHA, and caloric restrictions. So, like, low-calorie diets— or not so much a diet, but a way of eating. Let's just use that. So word. I would think like what we've talked about in terms of why am I blanking on the word? Intermittent fasting. Thank you. <laughs> I knew that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because you go an extended period of time, you know, and you're managing sort of calories in a different way. Omega fatty threes, DHA, right? Which is why like fishes, a number of different foods have these. Yeah. But also exercise. And ironically, even we'll talk about this in upcoming shows around which kinds of exercise actually play more of a role in BDNF. Mm, That would be fun. Yeah, because not all physical exercise is the same. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you got high intensity running, for example, which is like short spurts of running. Mm -hmm. And it's way different than, you know, sort of uh, marathon style running where you're running for many miles at a time. Yeah, sort of short spurts. It's different on the heart. It's different on the brain. There's a lot of different things that happen with different styles of exercise. Heavy weight lifting, of course, is obviously that. But as you get older, it gets harder to, you know, be in in the gym just simply to lift weights. You know, like at some point you have to think about flexibility and other things. So 
it would make sense that all these different exercise forms play a role. It's interesting how omega-3s fit in there. I always see the in the milk area, you know, the, the milk that has, it's organic and it has mm-hmm. omega-3 DHA in mm-hmm. it. Yep. And like we're trying to bring this into our diets more because no one's taking it as a supplement or eating, let's say, you know, wild-caught salmon. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's where you're going to get some of those things because those are foods that are higher in it. So you have, if you're not eating foods, if you're eating McDonald's every day, for example, you might want to supplement right. omega-3s. Maybe that's a different story altogether. But the point is, is like if you're not getting it from the food that have it occurring naturally, mm-hmm. you have to supplement it. So you're going to want to get in your milk. Right. You know, that's one way to get it, at least. Yeah, I'm totally forgetting the, the author offhand, but there's a book written a number of years ago called Spark. And it highlights the way in which exercise actually improves brain flexibility. So it's super important relative to learning and memory, right? And and this is the heart of it, of like, if you want to have hope for the future, if you want to feel differently, think differently, you have to learn new things, do Mm -hmm. things differently, and engaging in certain behaviors like managing what you eat and moving differently contributes to improving the flexibility of your own brain. And if you're out there struggling with the word exercise, replace it. Replace it with physical activity. Yeah, move. Yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, exercise. I must go be alone and make my body move and sweat a lot or whatever. Like it could be, you know, like I've found, I enjoy mountain biking. That's Mm -hmm. a physical activity. My heart pumps tremendously when I'm doing it, and I get out in nature. It satiates my technological side where I get into bike tech, and I get it's very tactile. It's very analog. I get to build the bike or maintain the bike. So for me, that's my particular outlet. I geek out over the tire style, you know, like very knobby tires versus very fast rolly tires or whatever. It's very multifaceted when it comes to thinking like it's not just exercise. It's physical activity. Right. But if I can even pull this back further and going, you know, movement is helpful for managing energy and that we take in a lot of things. You know, I've talked a lot about how we process information and I want to clarify sort of, you know, that we take in bottom up and that bottom up, though, looks like our genes and our hormones. Right. But then we have top down, which is our expectations, memories, mindset and emotion. So how I feel affects, you know, what I do. And then outside in, so like you're talking about even society, culture, family, life expectations, all of that then sort of makes your your biking experience more like fuller. Mm-hmm. So it's more comprehensive in managing your stress, changing how your brain works and reacts. And all of those things are enhancing the positive feelings relative to exercise. So then you're engaging in more play, which means you're actually practicing mindfulness while you do it, which is bartering the stress. Yeah. That's what I mean too, is like, just have hope that if exercise in and of itself doesn't motivate you or doesn't excite you, and you feel like yet another thing is telling you, okay, well, the key to good life is exercise. I have heard this a thousand times. Just find a way to name it differently is what I'm trying to say. Cause that's what helped me at least, you know, that's my perspective is like, 
I gave it a different name. I gave it a different style. And it wasn't just simply exercise for the sake of exercise. It was, like you said, playful. Mm-hmm. And my wife plays a role in this. She loves to see me go out and bike. My son loves it too. Mm-hmm. My son's a little shredder now, you know? So like now it's a kid component. It's it's a relational thing between me and my son and my new son who will one day, I'm sure, want to be a little shredder too. So it's got so many different facets where before it was just simply, well, how do we know to be healthy or, you know, to enable BDNF or neuroplasticity, which I didn't know about before. But old me, like, Adam, you know, if you if you want to influence this more fertile ground for these BDNF proteins to occur to enable neuroplasticity, which is great, mm-hmm. right? You've got to exercise. Well, it was harder to just, just to frame it as exercise. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. So because all of what we why we have these conversations is so that people can know different information to then do different, right? And one of the ways in which therapists often help patients change is this one modality or sort of method in therapy that we call motivational interviewing. Have you ever heard of this? No. So it's interesting, but sometimes used in conjunction with other therapies, but can also be used as a standalone. And that the interviewer sort of talks to people relative to their desire to change and and the reasons that they want to change. So, you know, you're trying to talk about the possibilities around what might hinder somebody from engaging in exercise, right? Like it's don't use the word exercise, use the word move, do, do something else. So if I want to change, but I realize I have a sort of aversion to exercising or like, hey, yeah, we all know that's good for us, whatever. What this can do is help the person sort of hear from the outside back in their own thoughts and why they want to change and the motivation relative to it. Remember when we talked about habit formation and how important it is that we get an immediate payout? Not like I get a payout like five years from now. Yeah. Right. But like, again, even realizing that like, you know, the donuts for me were an immediate deterrent. (laughs) And I had to sort of link those together and go, what do I really want? You know, do I want that sort of outcome? Or do I want a different one? And so then I can make different decisions because I realize, you know what, this doesn't really make me feel very good and it doesn't take me towards the path of health. Now, does that mean I never have a donut again? Um, No. (laughs) But... (laughs) I will eat donuts forever. (laughs) Nothing will stop me. No, but I actually, I mean, it's so helpful that people, when we talk about that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, that like I examine how I feel in response to eating different foods. So it can even be a food that other people would say, well, it's a relatively healthy food. Well, if it doesn't result in me feeling very good, I probably am not going to want to eat that and make other choices around that. So if we're talking diet, you know, what you choose to eat, if we're talking exercise, we're talking relationships, we're talking coping. I mean, we can even talk spending, going, what is the motivation to change and why would I want to do it differently? Am I really upset Mm -hmm. with how I'm feeling at the time that I think I really want to start to do something different. Moderation is an interesting word because it's a, it's a word I think that 
you know, we, we say, well, that's a bad thing to do. That's a bad thing to eat. That's a bad way to do things. Well, maybe. But in moderation, healthy moderation, most things that are in that lane, at least, can be done. Snickers once a year, Snickers once a month, donut once a month, you know, or whatever it might be. Right. In, in moderation. Moderation is a really key word. There's so many people that overindulge or underindulge, and moderation can be very helpful to not force you to to never have a donut again. Right. You know? I like to think about it like flexible or flexibility, and that I want to have strength, like I want to have structure, but I want to be flexible around that, Right. And, and that's what you're getting at in the moderation of saying, I can have it some of the time or I could do this some of the time, but I need to be considerate of, you know, the implications if I do that repeatedly. Exactly. So when we realize like, hey, your, your genes sort of provide the structure for who you are, but you have, you've got wide open access to alternatives that that maybe you didn't know were there that you could choose to do. I mean, what if I were to say, you know what? You can be more creative. You could be more flexible in your problem solving if you exercised, if you got out and moved, if you went for a walk at lunchtime. I'd do it. Yeah. Like we all, I think, want to feel good, but recognizing that sometimes that path to feeling better or having the life that we want actually involves giving up a little something I want, maybe even in the short run, for a longer term, bigger payout, right? And so I'm not going to go full tilt in extreme one way. Like we've talked about Dan Siegel, the psychiatrist who's like mental health is really this sort of, you know, not too chaotic or not too rigid. I don't want to be on either side of the windshield wiper, that I, I need a framework, I need some structure, and I need flexibility within that. One of the most critical things when we talk about this idea of change is actually believing that it's possible. Because look, if I look ahead and think, you know, I can't do or this never will, I'm not really going to put effort in that direction. So I want to send you guys off from this conversation with the realization that you can do things you didn't know you could or have a a life or something that you want, even if you didn't think it was in the cards that you were dealt. To some degree, flexibility in how we think and respond is going, you know, okay, that's what happened to me or those were the cards I was was dealt. Well, now what am I going to do with them? Can I, you know, make lemonade out of the lemons? It doesn't mean that, you know, you got the all the cards you wanted. But I don't want you to look at that as a sentencing around your future. So think about, is there some way, something in your life that isn't the way that you want it to be? What do you think about that? Do you think that you're capable of changing that or not? And then what sort of baby steps, how could I do itty bitty things repeatedly over time? Like literally, if you do not exercise, I'd be like, can you get up and walk for a minute? Could you on a commercial break of a show or during an ad, you know, of something, get up and move around? Could you run in place? Could you do jumping jacks? Like, could you 
join with your family and go for a walk somewhere else. Like anything to hiccup the status quo that will move you in the direction that you really want to go or where you want to get to. That's the exciting thing. And I want you to walk away with a renewed sense of hope saying like, I think I can. No, I know I can. It'll just take some effort and some time. All right, now it's time to head to the comments and let us know what you think about change, your brain changing, neuroplasticity, my fear of giving people blood to clone me. All the things are on the table. Comment at changelog.com slash brain science slash 23. This is episode 23. And do us a favor. If you haven't yet, go into iTunes and give us a review. We will say your name on air and thank you for your awesome review or for your not so favorable review five stars only please and that would be great the best way for us to get known and to become discovered is for you to tell your friends so that's one way but also tweeting or blogging about your favorite podcast and including us in the list would be awesome that is by far the best way for podcasts to be discovered and it's so helpful to us and of course huge thanks to our partners who get it fastly linode and rollbar those are our tech partners that make our website possible changelog.com And our music is produced by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. All those beats are made by that beat freak, and we love them. And if you want to hear more shows like this, you can subscribe to our master feed. Check it out at changelog.com slash master, or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. It's one feed you can subscribe to to get all of our shows, as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening to Brain Science. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 